I knew I needed at least a, a year more to work on it. I figured no one would give me a year to complete it. Who said this is not working out? Who said let's stick it on the shelf? I did. so many aspects of the Smile album and the elements and, and all the things that made up the record that he just, uh, he had to, to just let it go. Because it came at a time when Brian was just really finding it difficult to stay focused. He wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it, it wasn't fulfilling him, it was painful, so uh, we made Smiley Smile instead. Hello friends and welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. Hope everyone had a holly jolly Christmas, a happy Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, whatever your case may be, and a safe, happy new year. I'm glad you chose to spend this time with me, as always, to celebrate the story, the legacy, and the harmony of America's band, our band, the Beach Boys. Let's face it, there are a lot more serious things going on right now, and uh, maybe this program can be a bit of an escape from this strange alternate reality we're living in. Uh, and I know a lot of you guys are struggling with finding peace and happiness, and what better place to turn than the music of the Beach Boys. So let's kick things off on a cheerful note with a nice voicemail that we got from our good friend Chuck Hayes out in California. Hey, Wyatt, Chuck Hayes in Los Angeles. How are you, sir? Just calling to say hello and say I appreciate so much all the great work you've been doing. And uh, in this time of a lot of anxiety, it's so uh, great to hear uh, the passion and love for the music because that's what makes everyone happy. Uh, take good care of yourself. Have a great 2021, and I look forward to seeing you on the road. Thanks so much. Great to hear from you, Chuck, and I can't wait to see you out in California. Hopefully we'll get back out on the road this year, and um, thanks for all the kind words, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, one more voicemail today that we got from Daniel. Hey, guys. This is Daniel over here in L.A. I just want to thank you so, so much your podcast is blowing my mind every day. And for a diehard fan, um, I'm a little older than you guys. I got into them right around when Endless Summer came out. And I was about 10 years old, I guess, or maybe a little younger. I think about seven or eight, actually. Anyways, I got into them and been with them ever since and dove into everything I could. I was getting older, listening to a lot of punk rock in LA, and uh, so many encounters with the beach was really lucky um but my favorite and most mind-blowing was at the premiere of the american band um movie so it was at the director's guild in la and i was about i think i was six, 17 16 and a half 17 something like that anyways my brother and i went down there he's older but he really got me into him and i thank him i can't believe we're just complete nuts like you guys are out of our minds nuts 
But anyways, um, I, I took a couple photos of the guys getting out of their limos. Got a really clean one of Brian. Super good one of Carl and Dina. Martin. But the best part, I asked Brian for an autograph after he came out of his limo. And he said, okay. And I wasn't really expecting to see him, so I didn't have it. So he pulls out of his pocket, his breast pocket, an invite for the premiere. And it was good for two people to come in, so it was perfect. My brother and I got in. He signed it and gave it to me. And so now I had entrance to the ship to the movie, which is Directors Guild invitation only. All L.A. insider type people, movie people, music people. Um, and it blew my mind. So I got autographs from all of the guys who were there. Well, of course, Dennis was already gone by that point, but. Bruce Johnson and Al Jardine were super nice and asking me about high school and just all kinds of stuff. It was unbelievable. Anyways, afterwards, I got all their autographs on that on that little uh, postcard invite, which is really cool. And then um, I found myself face to face with Brian in the lobby. I was like the only like fan. Everyone was an insider music person quote adult you know I was the only fan that I saw that it, especially my age and he was a face to face with Brian and there's a bunch of people around him it was just like he and I all of a sudden there and I said Brian thank you so much for your music and I said hey Brian what's your favorite album and he says oh I don't know but he did say what's yours and I said oh mine is friends and he thought that was hilarious he's like oh. <laughs> Big, gruff laugh. He thought that was hilarious. And he laughed for like, what seemed like five minutes. He goes, Friends, he he, his favorite record is Friends. That was hilarious. And I was really nervous. And he kept laughing. And he, and he just put me at ease. And I, we were both just, for a couple seconds, laughing our butts off. Anyways, he was the nicest guy. I had many, many, many other encounters. Like, maybe I should email you, tell you some more including a couple of Dennis Wilson ones as a youngster. Not that happy with actually kind of sad stories with Dennis. But anyway, I have to tell you that because I know you guys can appreciate that. As the ultimate fans, getting an invite to this invitation-only premiere and meeting all of the boys, getting all their autographs and that one thing except for Dennis. But anyways, thank you so much. You guys are like light up my day when I hear this. I'm just trying to catch up to everything my my uh, brother was totally blown away by everything too so we're kind of I only like one error I can't remember what it was I wrote it down but I thought that was one little factor that was wrong can't remember what it is now but um, it was one of the early ones anyways you guys are outrageously good and thanks for sharing all your info and knowledge and uh, take care and keep up the good work bye well, thanks very much, Daniel, for calling in and sharing that with us. I really love those stories. Please do write and share more stories with me. I'm really jealous of all that stuff, you guys, especially getting to live in L.A. at the time and seeing those guys out there is, is pretty insane. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I make mistakes all the time, much less now that I have Will and John on board. But, yeah, I'm just a fan who... It's trying to figure out what's what. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this thing. You know, just pulling from every source possible and leaving no stone unturned, as they say. But uh, yeah, thanks, man. Really appreciate you. The-
So, as many of you requested, Surf and Earth made its debut once we reached 100 patrons with great help from Ceylon lead guitarist Matt Thompson, who also does our graphic design and is just an all-around fantastic dude. Thanks, Matt. And if you want to check it out, head to patreon.com slash on. And here's a few of our newest patrons. Jonathan Matos, Adam Coates, Todd Vidham, Brian Krikorian, Benjamin Wild, Billy Holly, Bruce Wormsley, Thomas Heiberger, and Brent Windler. It means a lot to me, and it helps the show keep running commercial-free for all our listeners. So, thank you very much. We love you. I want to give a quick shout out to Akashic Books, who sent me their newest in a series of children's books based on pop songs. And this one's appropriately called Good Vibrations, and it's absolutely adorable. If you guys have kids, or maybe if you're just like me and like anything and everything Beach Boys related, you should check it out. The illustrations are awesome. And uh, yeah, our listeners are going to get a 30% discount if you use this promo code BBGV30. And I have a link in the show notes where you can buy it. So please give it a look. Thanks again for sending it. This is really awesome. Clean water plays an important role in healthful recreation. Water also is an essential part of the composition of beautiful fountains. So last month we discussed the last sessions for the Abandoned Smile album, but before we can move on to Smiley Smile, we have to cover this transitional period, as well as some loose ends that we need to tie up. These recordings don't exactly fall into one project or the other, but they are very similar in style to the music Brian has been making over the last year or so. Dada is the first thing Brian recorded after the official announcement that Smile was scrapped, and it's a brand new piece of music, separate from everything else we talked about. But in order to trace its origins, we must travel back to December 1966. Welcome back, my expert navigators, Will and John. Happy New Year's, good sirs. Thank you happy for being here. Happy New Year's. Happy... Is it happy? I don't think it is, but you know. Well... <laughs> So Brian is at Columbia on December 21st. He's taped the grand piano strings. He's working on a grand new chord pattern, although it does share some harmonic ideas with heroes and villains. There's also some percussion, which you guys might have more insight on. Yeah, I mean, not much. I. It sounds kind of similar to the percussion in the vegetables fade, which we thought was probably some garden shears or something. But there's like two different sounds. It's someone hitting something and then clipping it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it sounds like some kind of scissors or something. I don't know. Brian plays this through in a swung 4-4 four, four time. Then he quickly switches it up to 3-4, um, apparently unbeknownst to, to Dennis. And then this whole thing lasts about 50 seconds, and Brian moves over to the Fender Rhodes to give it another go. Mm-hmm. 
There's some interesting pauses now in this new take. He overdubs the piano's slinky left-hand bass part, and that's where the session ends. Yeah, this is, um, it's kind of cool that he's using a Fender Rhodes. I think this is, because Brian doesn't really do electric pianos very much, you know. There's some on the Summer Days album. That's about it. The pauses are always interesting to me, like what was going on there, because it wasn't really evident. Well, in the, well, you know, in the, in the February all day thing, um, he says to whoever's watching that they're going to do like talking in the pauses. It's going to have speaking. So that, that's what that was for, I think. Or, uh-huh. I don't know. But it, it's a really unique um, piece of, I don't know. It's just kind of cool that it goes back this far. Like it's still in that sort of main smile period, this piece of, this piece of music. Right, and it's it's completely um, unconnected to all those other songs, like on the track list and everything else he was doing. So I don't know if this was something he was planning on overdubbing or if it was just a quick little demo to remember what he's written, but really neat to listen to. It does actually say on the tape box, it says Dada, and it's got one that's like piano and percussion, and then the other says Rhodes and piano. And... Um, there's another note on there that somebody's written, like, check it for some tack piano or whatever. So I don't know if this, this was always called Dada, if it was the same song. I'd love to say Dada or if somebody added that in reference to it. But just, yeah, I don't know what to take from that. But So he went on to revisit this progression in the February recording all day, but we covered that in our Heroes and Villains discussion. Yeah, took it from B to F sharp and sort of tries to make it a small section thing with a whole other different piece of music that doesn't come back later. Yeah, so it's the same basic piece of music, but um, we talked about this before because we're not actually sure if this was meant as a separate song or if it was part of Heroes and Villains. So either way, he's kept the same pattern in mind and that connection is pretty interesting. sounds wild man 16 that brings us to may 16th 1967 at gold star studio a now titled love to say dada this new version was recorded in two parts the first consisted of a two chord vamp very similar to some parts of good vibrations and childish father of the man We've now got Mike Rubini on Grand Piano. Is that a new session musician? That's just a Wrecking Crew guy. I think he's worked with Brian before this. I might be wrong. I don't know. Cool. Gene Estes on Tack Piano. Bill Pittman on the Dano bass. Lyle Ritz on Upright. Hal Blaine on drums. And Brian Wilson on the Temple Blocks. And they're both playing kind of uh, detuned pianos as well. It sounds a lot like the one that Brian would have as his signature thing at his home studio. Um, I think it's kind of just a, 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 an odd detail here that Brian's the one doing the temple blocks and you've got Gene Estes, who's the percussionist, he's playing piano. Um, so at some point they swapped, I guess. Maybe Gene wasn't playing the way Brian wanted. And then Brian was like, you know what, I'll just do it. This session is about a month after the last work on Vegetables. So 
there's been a long period of just rest here, I guess. Um, trying to figure out what to do with the project, what to do with all the songs. And I guess the solution he comes to is to revise that old chord progression that he hasn't really done much with and turn it into a full full song, full production. Yeah, there's, a, there's an odd anecdote from, I think it's one of the 90s liner notes or something, where Brian says that the first day Brian moved into the Bellagio house, that there's a piano there and he wrote Cool Cool Water at it. And this would have been like late March, early April. But that's wrong for two reasons. One, because he didn't write Coco Water, he wrote Love to Say Dada. On the other, because he'd already written it in like December. So I think he kind of maybe rewrote it or... Yeah, probably expanded it the, into the yeah. into the full song that it is here. Structured it, maybe gave it a melody. Um, thought of a concept for it and came up with this new sort of part one intro part. I think that's what it was for. Some kind of little instrumental intro or maybe would have had vocals. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but... Yeah, and Marilyn tells the story that uh, while he was writing this thing, he made her go get a baby bottle full of chocolate milk to get him in the mood because it's a baby song. Um. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, what else can you say about that? Um, so back on the following day... Take one, part two. Love to say da-da. This time Brian's on the B3 organ. Gene Estes has moved to the claves. Carol Kay and Bill Pittman on the guitars. Ray Pullman plucks out the melody on an upper register on the electric bass while Lyle Ritz plays the previously established part. Jay Migliori and Jim Horn are now playing a counter melody on clarinets. sounds like they're about to rip into little bird at the end of this but um yeah that's another spoiler alert <laughs> um i the thing that you know you mentioned like brian writing the melody there's like five melodies on this song there so are pretty stuff, yeah. interesting there's so much little there's so many little counter melody ideas and things that it's hard to tell like really you know what you know what the melody is at this point well, this is something we can talk about when we get to Cool Cool Water, but most of the melodies in Cool Cool Water, like most of the musical information is like already here in Dada, you know, it's just instrumental right. instead of vocal. Uh, but they did do vocals in this as well, um, which are Brian and Hal Blaine, of all people. Oh, wow, wow. pretty crazy um why did he pull hal in to sing with him on this i guess maybe because there was no one else there and he wanted yeah, I like mean, a, kind of a cool chant hal had a deep voice <laughs> hal um, is not a singer but it's i guess he uh could be he's a been upgraded he's been upgraded from carnival barker to vegetable arguer to singer <laughs> i mean it sounds fine you know <laughs> it's, it's it sounds good with brian it's just kind of odd that it's hal blaine take one part two second day then the third day of tracking brings us the second day. 
of Love to Say Dada Part 2 with Frank DeVito on bongos, Gene Estes on the Mark Tree, um, or you may know it as some chimes, Ray Pullman on the fuzzed out six-string bass, doubling Mel Poland on upright. Bill Pittman now playing a classical guitar melody, and Jay and Bill are on some sporadic little bird-like piccolos. I just wanted to mention that I really love this 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 piece, and I wish they used it on the Smile Sessions, like the mm-hmm. mix on disc one, or on Brian Wilson Presents Smile. Uh, and it's got the same pauses that uh, were in all the previous versions, but now you've got the little ascending piccolos and the the chimes, and it just sounds really nice. Yeah, it's a great arrangement. There was another session scheduled for the fourth day that they never got around to. And it was perhaps more of the same. Yeah, so the the part two, the first version of part two, um, after they, they finish up that section, they start playing, uh, sounds like a new section, sounds like that child is father of the man mm-hmm. um, progression, and it's got the bass line there as well. Uh, so maybe that's what they were going to record on that fourth day because that kind of works as a transition to second day and that's what they did with Cool Cool Water a little bit later that year. Well, there's a tape from October 67. It's a version of Cool Cool Water where Brian uses that same section, basically. He plays it on piano, but he uses it to segue into another verse. Um, he basically re- replaced it in Cool Cool Water with like the little fi- finger snaps, basically. He just chopped it out. He didn't need it. Um, but on the official 2011 mix of that, on I think it's disc five or no disc four, it goes into like mm-hmm. this bridge section. But that's not the way he recorded it. That's edited. Um, there's like the early, the early smaller sessions that was given out to journalists. Um, it's a little bit longer, that thing, and it goes into another verse section. It's quite simple. So I think that section would have been pretty um, self-explanatory. It's a bridge into second day. And then maybe there would have been another, like a fade section or something, or I'm not sure how he would have wrapped this up, but I think it's quite clear that all of this was part of, like, Second Day is not replacing anything. It's um, it's another part of the song, and it adds up to about a three-minute, three-and-a-bit-minute track. I think it's really interesting to contrast the way he's worked on this song with other things. Uh, Cabin Essence is another three-piece song, and the way he recorded that was he got all the musicians in the studio in one day and recorded all three parts each one of these is recorded on a different day and they're all very short pieces of music so and he didn't do many takes either it's very relaxed <laughs> yeah just kind of taking his time and it's a comes out in the music too it's just a very relaxed recording relaxed song but it's also i think it enables him to do that thing that the thing that i love about all these um data sections is how like different the instrumental textures of, of each of each mm-hmm. section are you know he's got kind of this keyboard thing in each one on the first one he's got kind of this detuned grand piano and then a detuned tack piano together and then the second you know part two um he replaces that with one of the replaces the tack piano with an organ basically and then second day he's got like this upright piano with taped strings and then the guitars as well he's got you know in 
in regular part two, he's got this strummed rhythm guitar and this 12 string part that doubles the clarinets. Then he's got this, um, gut string thing. And then the, you know, clarinets become piccolos and the percussion changes as well from like claves to bongos. And it's just really cool the way he mixes up, like, it, I don't know, it all feels of a piece with each other, but he's doing something very creative and different with each arrangement here. Yeah, it doesn't quite have the cohesion that something like Cabin Essence does um, in a good way, I think, because it allows each part to kind of have its own identity. Yeah. And he probably, yeah, like you said, he was probably able to do that by recording them all on a different day. And that also gave him time, more time to arrange them and probably think over how he wanted it to sound. Yeah, it just makes you wonder what that fourth session would have been because the uh, musicians there, he's got Mike Rubini again, who's on all of them. So um, that would have been probably Brian would have played a keyboard as well. So you've got two keyboards, Lauritz and Bill Pittman, probably guitar and bass or bass and bass. And then he's got like three percussionists. He's got Hal, Jim Gordon, and Alan Estes. So there would have been some complicated things going on there probably. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really sad that he didn't do that fourth session. But yeah, we get from that Marilyn anecdote that this was a baby themed song. He was writing a song about childhood, basically. Um, you know, love to say Dada. That's what a baby does, you know. They love to say that, according to Brian. Um, so so I think second day, there's all this, there's been all these, um, so the, the craziest theory I've read is someone bringing like a biblical thing into it, saying, because it, like, it was air and water, the elements, and the second day is like when God split the, the air from the, from the water. The creation of the world out of chaos. The bringing forth of the seas, the firmament, the living creatures, the creation of man from the dust. Uh, no, come on, um, it's not. It's not going to be that. Uh, I think. I think it's something quite literal. You know, it's either the second day they worked on this variation of this music, or if you look at it as a sort of baby concept thing that I think Brian was thinking about, it would be the first day and then the second day, like you know. Of, of a life or something like it's kind of and then, and then at part one maybe it's like being born or something i don't know part one is makes is very kind of watery and tumbly i think it's completely valid for anyone to hear that and think that it's the water section you know which it's not but it, it do, I, I i completely i definitely do get a kind of watery feel from that one yeah i mean and that's why he revisited and changed the lyrics so that's that's my question is did this song inform the idea and title for cool cool water i don't know like, was, yeah. it, was it originally something else then brian revisited it at bellagio and kind of just let the song take him somewhere else most likely because what he has here is is completely separate to anything about water yeah but the music does have a watery feeling like i get yeah. why people would think that this song plus all his ideas he had the previous year about the film he wanted to make with water, having all the sound effects, the elements, which he never got around to, all those ideas kind of come back um, in the context of this chord progression. And that's where he gets the idea for Cool Cool Water. When Carl in the 70s was looking at these tapes, he would have thought, okay, this is just cool, cool water, but it's got Love to Say Dada written on the box. So that's where that kind of whole thing came from. But I think the narrative Brian was trying to tell with these three pieces 
or maybe four pieces if you recorded the next one is it's kind of maybe part one is a baby being born or something and then you know part two is first day part two is second day it's kind of going out in nature or something i don't know i kind of get the feeling that you had this little concept for a narrative inside with this thing yeah and um that vocal on the smile sessions that's not on the good vibrations box that's just straight from cool cool water because it's the same music but mm -hmm. the melody works really well and the lyrics there are just dada so probably what he was planning on doing there anyway i think yeah i think that was the i think that was just the lead vocal you know it's what it would have been yeah um but it's pitched up you know because exactly. they recorded cool cool water in a different key so it sounds not very good but i think it was planned to be that and i'm not even sure that there would have been many other backing vocals beyond the you know the wah wah ho wah thing because <laughs> um yeah because it's other... all happening in the arrangement yeah exactly yeah cool cool water all these different um vocal melodies are mostly there and when at least two of them are there in the instruments on dada part two so yeah there is a claim that we should probably address <laughs> that um Many, according to many musician accounts, this is written in a particular book, that Brian was going to mix down the Smile album on that May 19th session at Goldstar that was cancelled, and he would have added the final overdubs and Smile would have been finished, and obviously this is ridiculous and not true at all, because he had a drummer. You don't need a drummer to finish and mix an album. Um, it was just a cancelled session for Love to Say Dada, and the status quo didn't really change with this session. It's the last big one at Goldstar, but it's not the last Smile-type pro studio thing he did. Um, so yeah, it's not really indicative of any end of smile. It's already past the official end of smile and he continued to do things in the same way for a little while afterwards. This is just another step on the way to smile and smile. After returning from a successful European tour, the group convened at Armin Steiner's Sound Recorders to work on vegetables, as you probably remember from last episode, but they were also working on this new tune called You're With Me Tonight. 13. With me tonight, I know you're with me tonight. You're with me tonight, I know you're with me tonight. For sure you So this first version recorded June 3rd is another two chord vamp, but now we're really starting to establish the smiley sound with just Brian on bass beneath several layers of vocals um, sung by Brian, Carl, Al, and Dennis. Remember, Bruce went bye-bye. <laughs> um, this shares the same basic chord pattern and the simple bass thumping as vegetables, but it's definitely something else. So this is really only like a 40-second little snippet that's basically just a copy of the Vegetables verse with new lyrics and a new melody. Yeah, it's, it's while they were there mixing vegetables, basically, that they did this, and it's, it's really unusual. Yeah, it's basically just a variation on vegetables. So we don't know if, if they were going to use it in vegetables or if this was just going to be a short little uh, intro or B-side or whatever, but 
I mean, it sounds really cool. I really can't tell if, yeah, I can't tell if this was just an experiment or if this would have been one section of a longer thing or if this was it, because it's so short. Yeah, because you'd think if, if they wanted to put this in vegetables, they would have just overdubbed it on the track that they had yeah. instead of make a whole new recording, And I think which would be harder to edit. Yeah, I think vegetables is, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think Brian was too conscious about lyrics to do that, you know, I don't think he would go... I want to be around my favorite, my vegetables to you're with me tonight. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the song. To me, it's simple enough that it's one of those things that I've done a, a, a bunch of times when you're kind of like working on something and then you get a different idea that kind of is the same thing and then you just try it and then, you know, yeah, it could have been that could simple. Be. They were just impro- improvising on the idea, on the, on the vegetables idea. Brian playing bass as well, which is cool. We haven't heard him do that in a while. And that's that's all the backing track is yeah. just a bass line, kind of like you know, yeah, vegetables on Smiley Smile. It's just Brian playing bass and yeah. singing over the it. And uh, the backing vocals are you know the third verse of Vegetables under the scat verse, they're the same, like the same people as well because there's no mic, but it's Carl and Brian have swapped parts around, so Carl's on the top and then it's Al and then it's Dennis and then Brian does the extra dooby dooby doo, and uh, then Brian and Carl trade off the lead and then Brian does this really shrill high harmony of a Carl. Um, it's cool. It's good stuff. Yeah, I love it. The next version was tracked on June 5th back at Western, this time with sort of a parlor-style harpsichord played by Brian and a bouncy vocal arrangement that borrows from Dada and Carl overdubbed a bass here as well. Well, this one's much longer than what he's done before. That was just a small little section and this is now pretty much a full recording. Could be a tough track. Yeah. Yeah, this could pass on Smiley Smile with some of the other songs of similar length. So I think he's gone from just a variation on Vegetables, which is what he did at the last session, to, okay, this is going to be a new song. You know, maybe he's still thinking that Vegetables is going to be a single and it's going to be a B-side. Or maybe he's thinking ahead to Smiley Smile. Yeah, the session for this was logged as um, Vegetables, in brackets, you with me tonight. So... I don't mm-hmm. know, I, this can't be in Vegetables, it's its own song at this point, so it must be a B-side, I think. It's it's far too long to be a part of a song at this point. I, I think this is the first, of, I mean, this is like the second in a few experiments between, between Smile and Smiley, where he tries different approaches before he finally decides to go to his house and record that way. So this is kind of, it's not Smile anymore, but it's not Smiley either. Um, and from the last one as well, now he's got a new bass line that's not related to vegetables, and he's got he's got new backing vocals that aren't either. The backing vocal melody is kind of the the acoustic guitar in part two, second day from Blood to Say Dada. It's like an adaptation of that. A day later, they're back at Western to do another version of You're With Me Tonight, similar to the last, but it's a more relaxed tempo, different bass line, mirroring the backing vocals played by Chuck Berghofer and Carl, and a few extra chords. Brian, Carl, Al, and Mike are now all singing in unison the lead while hand clapping. Yeah, 
So first of all, this, this is the one that is on the Smile Sessions on disc four. So you can find it there. And it's yep. it's kind of got a similar vibe to the last one, but it's just, uh, you know, more in the smiley smile mood than anything else. Mm. But they've still got the smile production value and he's got like a session bassist. He's got two basses. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's kind of, you know, the, the second one he did harpsichord and then overdub bass, and this one he's just doing bass and then overdub and harpsichord. I, I think it's kind of cool that Brian's down there snapping his fingers as well while they're doing the track. He could have played the harpsichord, but he needed to snap his fingers. Um, this is my favorite one, I think. Oh, another thing to mention about the vocals is Dennis was there on the second one, but he's not there on this one. He just did it without mm-hmm. Dennis. And uh, yeah, it's kind of all the, the lead vocal. It's all four of them, Brian, Carl, Alan, Michael, singing together. The other one was Mike, and then Carl has those little solo lines, and and they add some extra stuff in the intro as well, where they're all going om, om, om. <laughs> um, yeah, and those vocals also kind of come from that last version of Wonderful he did. Oh yeah, yeah, where they all go, mum, mum, mum. I didn't like, even think all of these. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, all, all of it's these. All, it's uh, all connected. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this song is just really just born out of everything else. It's just a combination of all these ideas in a new order, really. So. The different, on the AFM contracts for each of these sessions, it's, it's really pretty strange. So this last one they did on June 6th and then overdub stuff on it on June 7th. So the different dates, for the June 3rd, which is the first version, it was just a vegetable session. June 5th, for the second one, it was vegetables in brackets, you're with me tonight. June 6th, it was vegetables in brackets, insert. June 7th, it was vegetables in brackets, you're with me tonight, insert. So like... I said, keep putting vegetables on the on the document. <laughs> I don't get it. Um, yeah, must have been either some sort of B-side or replacement, but there's no way he wanted to put a whole three-minute song in the middle of the song, Vegetables. I know some smile theorists that would do that. But. Right, yeah. <laughs> they also began working on another track that same day. And was this the last session that Brian recorded at Western for a long time? For seven Seems years. Like 1974 wow. was the next time I we went to Western with Chuck Bretz to do the California feeling and Lucy Jones demos. <laughs> and he's been frequenting this place since like 62. Yeah. Yeah, that's insane, really, man. Yeah, it's unusual to think how much Brian, this was Brian's home basically, and then he just dropped it like a drop, mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat. He stopped recording there. And I think it was a very conscious thing for him to avoid that. He started yeah. using Wally Hyder's Studio 3, which was a replica of Western 3, basically. And even these days when he records, they've got East-West Studio 3, you know, they've revamped it. It's just like it used to be. But these days when Brian does his solo stuff, it's normally in Ocean Way. Or I think it might be, it's uh, which used to be United, which is just down the street. It's just like the sort of twin studio. It's very odd how Brian... I mean, was it a technical thing still? Like, what did Western still only have three tracks? No, no, Brian. I think I think these last sessions at Western with um, you with me tonight were eight track because there are more things going on than could be done yeah. in four track. So I think it was eight track. And, okay, uh, I was I wasn't sure when they expanded 
Um, I'm not sure either, but Brian was using his own 8-track there sometimes, and I think he's finally with me tonight, Sash. It's interesting. Well. I mean, maybe it was also just to save money. I don't know. Yeah, going I mean... through a lot of weird stuff. Because of the Beach Boys, everyone was using Western. You know, Beach Boys, Mamas and Papas, all these groups. Sure. But it was known as one of the best, pretty much the best place in, in LA to record. So it got very busy and hard to book time there. And I think it was both that, Brian wanting someone new to just separate himself from his hit-making days. One, two, three... Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, wait a sec. Is Cool, cool water is an evolution of Dada Part Two, now in the key of B flat, without the pauses and without the final section. A rehearsal was taped with all five Beach Boys practicing the song around Brian's piano. For the proper recording, Brian laid down a basic harpsichord track that featured a unique left-hand figure that wasn't used in later versions. Um, And I love the vocals here. Maybe, John, you can tell us more about what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty much the same as what they did later that year, but with everyone's parts um, switched around. And Dennis isn't on the actual recording, but he's um, he's in the rehearsal doing the da 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 you know the part that the lead vocal, mm-hmm. yeah, in, yeah, is <laughs> missing the lead pretty, vocal. Yeah, in pretty the final much, one. pretty much the lead. So Brian probably was gonna have him or someone do that on an overdub, but I don't know, just didn't end up happening. But I love, I love the sound of these vocals. I think I prefer this to the one that they did later on. The singing's it's better. It's on sunflower the and singing's wild more honey. watery. You know, it's because they're yeah. whispering, and Mike is like. It's like a millimeter away from the microphone. It's like he's, it's like Mike is inside your head. <laughs> yeah, it's like ASMR. They're like directly in front of the microphones, singing really soft. So this is basically Love to Say Dada, you know, to them, I think to the other Beach Boys, this is the same song, but with new words. Um, Brian is, it's only been like three weeks since Dada, you know. The the lead vocal, which wasn't on Dada, you can hear in, in the session for Love to Say Dada that Brian plays it on the organ at some point. And the, the Hand Me Some Cool Cool Water is pretty much just the clarinets. From there, and then the 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 trip 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 drink a little. That's the high clicky bassline in Dada Part Two. It's the same as that. And then the the wah wah ho wah thing is kind of. It's not the same. It wouldn't have trans. It doesn't. I don't think it would have translated into this. But it's kind of functionally replaced by what Mike's singing. This didn't go very far because they didn't do any more work on this or record any kind of intro or other section. It's just right one piece of probably what would have been a bigger song, but. It's cool that he's basically taken what was a big, complicated instrumental track and shifted that to vocals, because all we have here is a harpsichord that's just 
functionally serving as um, a rhythm instrument playing the chords. Yeah, what was Brian with what was it with Brian and the harpsichord that week? I mean, <laughs> I don't know if harpsichord is the right choice for this, but it's just yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that that rehearsal where they're just singing around the piano, it's like oh my god, this is beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. how can you leave it there for three years? But it just sounds. No pun intended, it just sounds really cool. Let's hear that. So yeah, so in June, the band moved their operations to Brian's brand spanking new home studio, and they kicked things off, it appears, with a uh an old folk song by the kingston trio called good news you can assume that this was al's idea but yeah oh yeah there is also a home recording of Brian and some female friend doing this in like 1960 or so. I completely forgot about that until you just said it right now. But yeah, it's obviously a song that Al was into, and I think they probably just were getting things rolling, and Al was like, okay, you know, get out here, Carl, grab a guitar, do this, we'll see how it sounds. Yeah, it, it feels like an equipment test, because it is the first thing that they did here. It's, yeah, it's quite an odd one. It was, um, I think we had the date for this for ages, but there was no tape for it, and I think it was found unmarked on the tape for something else, I'm not sure what tape it was on. Um, but then they decided it was kind of unreleasable for Sunshine Tomorrow, because it's just, you know... Carl and Al singing, you know, strumming 12-string acoustics and then singing off mic. And then Al actually got as far as overdubbing a mandolin on top of this thing, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I think this must have been, you know, some kind of equipment task because it's the first thing we ever did at Brian's house. Um, What else would it be for? I mean, it would have been quite cool to hear this in Smiley Smile, but it's... I'm a big fan of this yeah, because of not only the historical um, importance of it, but um, I just like the sound of it. Sounds cool. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a little demo. Home studio as well, I should probably talk a little bit more about. So it was, I'm not sure whose idea it was. I don't know if it was Brian who wanted this or maybe Nick Rello talked him into it for financial reasons or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but basically it was kind of, I think, what we've talked about with Weston. It was both to avoid having to book studio time and also just to get into a new environment that would kind of spark creativity again. So they set up this sort of makeshift studio using like borrowed radio equipment in uh, Brian's, his new Bellagio sort of Spanish mansion had this huge like living room that they converted for this thing. It was, when we say home home studio, it's it's a big room, it's bigger than Weston. Yeah, they, they set up like cables going into the kitchen with monitors and stuff like that. It was very, it became a real studio later, but at this point it very much was like sort of ad hoc, lo-fi kind of thing. And Jim Lockett, who was uh, from, I think he was working at Wally Hyders, they got him to engineer. Because Brian wanted Chuck Britz to be his kind of personal engineer at his, his house, but Chuck couldn't do it because he was kind of busy. So he 
recommended Jim Lockett to do this thing. He had already worked on a few Brian sessions, I think. And, uh, and Steve Desper as well, who became a big name in a few years' time. I think for the past few months, it's never been fully established like when he started, but he was mixing the shows, the, like the group shows on the road. So he was roped in to help Jim engineer a few of these sessions, like about a year before he became the full-time group's engineer, because Jim Lockett had kind of poor health and stuff, so Steve was just around to help. He wasn't like a second engineer, he was just an assistant, sort of. So, yeah, it's it's a big start of a, a lot of new things for the Yeah, for it's the exciting. And we'll talk a lot about this studio because they spent, you know, the majority of the next three to four years. Five years, I think. Tracking there. Um, I, I think it's I think it's awesome. Every time I, I get to see the little glimpses of that studio, um, yeah, it's it always like a treat. The it, coziest they, place. <laughs> they didn't allow cameras in there. Um, yeah, there's only... A very small amount of photos, but there is some video too that they did in in '68. But I really wish I could see, like around the Smiley Smile era when it wasn't fully set up and they probably just had instruments everywhere. Be so great to see pictures of that. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that they kind of stumbled into this because it was like a, it was kind of a hidden room in the in the house. Like it was, it had like a, a a fake like bookcase doorway yeah which is the (laughs) best thing (laughs) and like they built it in a way you know it's like it's almost like it it was just perfect for what it was because brian's bedroom was right above the studio so he could hear what was going on and you know not to get too into that but it's pretty amazing it's just super fortuitous and like i don't think it was like they bought the house with that in mind it's awesome it's one of my favorite eras of the beach boys recording so yeah. So to get back on topic, at first what they were doing here wasn't the idea wasn't to go to Brian's house and record an album. It was to go to Brian's house and finish up Heroes and Villains. It was just to wrap things up because he'd while they were away on tour, he had kind of rewritten the song and a it wasn't Vegetables wasn't going to be the single anymore. He was going to be Heroes again. And Brian finally, after months and months of experimenting with these pieces, he sat down and he basically rewrote the song, like at a piano, so he could play it. And then he recorded that plan for the first time in a long time. Yeah, just when you thought it was over, guys, Heroes and Villains is back. And, um, you know, we're finally going to finish this thing off. First thing that they did is um, they went back to the verse track from way back in 1966. That remake that we talked about uh, is not going to be used at all. But they completely redid the vocals. So all the backing vocals are redone and, and all the leads as well. But... The, vac- the backing vocals here are the five of them. Remember, no Bruce. They did the Oz and uh, double-tracked that, and then they did kind of a new arrangement of those scat vocals. Uh, slightly revised, I guess, to make up for, for Bruce not being there, but Dennis's part is way more prominent in this one. And then Brian's lead here is also double-tracked, but at the end of each line, he has Carl and Mike uh, double him, which a lot of people don't really know. Every time he says heroes and villains, for example. But he sang the other verse first, the, the, the stand or fall, so he could mix that down and then sing the other vocals. Uh, and that's the first time 
those lyrics have been recorded. Because these were written, you know, they wrote all the lyrics for the song and at the same time, but for some reason these um, what these words, for whatever reason, they just haven't appeared yet. So it's yeah. So all those all those heroes and villains sessions we talked about a couple episodes ago, never recorded those words until now. So on that verse, it's Brian singing it, and then Carl does a little falsetto backing vocal along with it, which is kind of hard to hear because it's just yeah, it's just in the mono. But yeah, I mean, he, what he basically did is he just kind of. He revamped this with more of a plan for what he was going to do this time, you know. The other one, he kind of just... Like, he's got, like, a, sort of this ending transition thing, the what da 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 thing that goes into one of the chords. And then he's got, like, the, the ahs. They don't just go ah when they go over the E-flat chord. They do that vocal riff, which is, like, one of the big hooks of the of the song, really. He's, like, back in hit-making mode that he hasn't been in for in a while. I think everything he did to this these parts of um, of the song, he did the, he, in a way that made them better. You know, all of the, I think the performances of the vocals in general are just better. The arrangement is more kind of interesting. And even when he does, like, you know, all the scat parts, by getting rid of the Bruce part, changing the Dennis part, it just kind of makes it more... It clears up room in the arrangement, I think. And the more kind of rhythmic, you know, the more percussive when they sing it. So it kind of, like, hits harder. And uh, this, uh, just little kind of creative, interesting things he does with this. Like, he has... Carl doesn't sing with the others. Carl recorded his little sort of riff separately. So in the stand or fall verse, you can just have Carl singing, you know, behind the lead and not use the other vocals. And these little things, it's kind of, he's thinking in a smarter, sort of more melodic, kind of hooky way. But this is the first time he's used the Baldwin organ on any, the, the famous organ that was given to him by Murray. And now the, you know, the French horn riff was good, but now he's got this different thing that kind of, it's like a counter melody that then harmonizes with the French horn. All these different, you know, just extra little melodies and... He's, yeah, it's 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 back basically. It's more dynamic than it ever was. Yeah, well, the difference here is is instead of experimenting in the studio and trying out all these different things that ended up not meshing and making him feel bad about the project, he's just sat down probably by himself at the piano and worked out how he wants the entire song to sound from start to finish, and that's what allows him to just be super productive here and get everything done with within a matter of days. If only he had done that from the beginning. Exactly, you know. On all this stuff. <laughs> he just needed time away from it to think about Make it. Make a song from start to finish, then record it. <laughs> you know, it's just a wild concept at this point. But Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, how you get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. Like, like we said many times before, the experimentation allowed his music to go all sorts of crazy places it never would have gone, but at the expense of being finished. Yeah, no one ever hearing it. Yeah. 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 So... Another thing as well about this is the singing. Like I, for the life of me, I can't fathom anyone who prefers, you know, the February one where he's kind of just shouting. It's it's kind of cool, but it's not very tuneful. This one, I think, it's some of the smartest singing Brian like ever did. You know, listen to it isolated. The way he's kind of pushing and pulling on the rhythm, like it's so smart the way he does it. And so he's singing it. He's not yelling anymore. He's and when he sings the standard four part, I think that's maybe one of his best little vocal moments ever. And on every. At the end of every line, he's he's using some vibrato there, and it just sounds really, really yeah. professional and really neat. I wish he recorded it this way in a pro studio back in '66. 
dancing in the night, unafraid of what a doodle do in a town full of heroes and villains. That was a little sweet. I love that transition at the end as well, uh, where they kind of he does this interesting thing where he has the R's is still on like a, the the uh, the D flat chord, but the the other vocals on the top are doing like that sort of A flat seventh, and it's like dissonant sort of little moment there but I, I think that was from other people have pointed this out before me but i think it was from my obsession which is uh brian's favorite rolling stones track because he was stoned at the session and i think it just imprinted on him in a in a, in a way because of that there's just something kind of similar and i think this came directly from that and i think al complained about this as well but i like it it's a cool effect where he lets the two chords kind of run over each other Yeah, I like it too. The stereo mix I was used to growing up didn't include that. So when I first heard it in the mono mix, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, it's not a um, mistake. This is definitely something Brian wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, he would have had complete control over that in the mix. So it's very intentional, everything he's done here. Speaking of which, what is the weird synth wind sound going on there at the at the end of the acapella verse. Yeah, well, yeah. when they do the acapella verse, it's missing from the small sessions, but there's that kind of whooshing sound, which in 2000, you know, when they performed it live, Proben Gregory um, played on a tanner and the replicant, replica electrotheremin. But I think in this one, it's someone or maybe more than one person whistling with the fingers in the mouth. And it might be Al, because Al's mentioned one time that he can do a big whistle. I've never heard it, but, <laughs> you know, it might be Al. Or it, might be, <laughs> it might be a few of them, I don't know. But I think it's literally just people whistling when they do that. It's a really, very cool sound, and I wish it was higher in the new mixes, like it is in the mono. Yeah, I kind of always thought it was like a theremin, but I don't know. That plus the plus the organ riff at the end kind of give it a circus feel. Yeah. Yeah, right. Brian loves that circus music. Yep. <laughs> Something that is kind of scary, like in some of the places. That's a whole different episode, too, but there's just so much weird, creepy circus music. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean it. It works here though because um, that kind of works as a transition to the to the chorus, which is super creepy. Yeah, speaking it's all of, about heroes and villains. Speaking of creepy yeah. circus music, um, <laughs> bicycle rider chorus. This is another track he reused. This is um, what he recorded all the way back in uh, February, I think. So he does in in that version. He had um, Lyle Ritz do an upright bass, but he kind of replaces that here with like a low organ drone and then the vocals here are everyone including Billy Hinchy now it's Al Jardine doing the lead singing the lyrics heroes and villains just see what you've done and then Carl does that that falsetto in the background which is interesting that he's having Carl do all these high parts now I think his his upper register is kind of coming into a uh, coming into play more in the recordings. And then, of course, you know, Brian's eventually going to kind of fade out doing all the high stuff in a couple of years but he's still doing it here 
And then those, the backing parts are Brian and Billy Hinchy and uh, Mike and Dennis. Billy Hinchy has the prominent part. He's the one that's the loudest. And I think it's, it's a really cool kind of sound. It, I thought it was Brian for the longest time, but uh, it's cool, you know, just trivia to say, hey, that's, that's not a Beach Boy. Um, and as I actually asked Billy as well, just to check. This wasn't in the swimming pool. Kind of disappointing. This was in the house. Um, <laughs> it's just the other part that they did in the pool. Oh, and I also, speaking of, speaking of asking people things, Van Dyke Parks said that it wasn't his idea to change the lyric to Bicycle Rider to Heroes and Villains Just See What You've Done. I, I didn't think it was anyway, but I asked him about this and he said something vague about how maybe the Beach Boys never had like a pack of the Bicycle Rider trading cards. <laughs> um, so that was Brian just changing, the, changing Van Dyke's words against his uh, consent. <laughs> it works, you know. Probably the, the controversial part of Heroes, the, the chorus, which is not really a chorus. I think the Beach Boys themselves treated this like a bridge, and then it comes back at the end, kind of like, you know, Massive Help and stuff. It's a bridge section that kind of reprises itself. Um, but it's not, doesn't quite, if you want to make it a commercial single, it's not quite what it needs to be. You know, the way he mixed out the bass, I don't think the organ kind of replaces it. I think it's fills out the low end, but he's not playing a bass line, he's just holding chords. You know, and then he, yeah. the, the percussion is muted apart from two very specific tambourine hits. He just brings it up for that for some reason. I can't figure out why. But he ends up making this very sort of, very sort of, you know, low key, kind of monotonous and droney. And you just think all the ways that he could have made this more kind of energetic for a hit single. I'm not saying it would have been better because I like it the way it is. But, you know, it, like if you just did like the kick drum and the fuzz bass from Bicycle Rider, like they kind of did when they did it live, keep up the tempo a little bit. There are so many things that you could have done. I think this is, it, it, would, be, it would be fair to say that Brian underproduced this. I don't like that word very often, but this is one where I, I get the criticism that Brian didn't do all he could with his section. Yeah, I mean, if he did that and made the chorus way more upbeat, it totally would have been a, a bigger song, I think, because the way it is now, it's just the way the organ is just droning those chords it's uh yeah you know it works for the song cuz it, it sounds scary but it does not work on the radio <laughs> especially in contrast to the verse which is just total upbeat yeah i mean bruce said this he was like in london and it came on in a club and people were dancing and then it came came to the slow section and then everybody kind of got confused and stopped <laughs> but it didn't have to be that way because when they did it live in the 70s um which i'm not as big a fan of as a lot of people are that 70s version but the way they made the chorus kind of very propulsive it's the same tempo as the verse and it's got that big sort of the big drum and it keeps up and they've got you know like the, the way they even the way they did it in hawaii in 67 a part of it, that guitar riff and stuff. If you just did more to it, like, I don't know, maybe a 12-string guitar right. wouldn't sound very Western, but he, if he did a mandolin, like in Cantina doing that part, just more, something else to give it some energy to make it seem less kind of dry, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's that's a consequence of taking recordings from totally different times at different places, um, is that you get the contrast that you need to make the song work artistically but then it just sounds you know you don't get the radio hit it which is also what he was looking for at the same time yeah yeah as well mm -hmm. that, that, that bass line as well which is we love it you know the spooky kind of low string bass but 
it wasn't used in the mix probably for a reason and it would have been cool if it used in the mix i think all of that stuff belongs together i don't think you've got to choose between organ or string bass but the, the way they did it in 2004 they had cellos do it instead and it was much more kind of rhythmic and driving it's like sort of evil good vibrations which would have been did get do a cello you know oh well you know it's yeah <laughs> it's a cool track but i think maybe if he redid it either in the home studio or at at western or something with with some session guys would have been better yeah yeah but the vocals sound great as well yeah i i still love it it's just it it seems like he missed the mark with what he was going for which is an unusual thing in brian productions There's an acapella piece that they sung in Brian's swimming pool um, out back of the new house. The only thing that's still there, really, if you uh, if you want to check it out on your little map app, check out the swimming pool where they recorded this section. Um, and they did it late at night to avoid the airplanes flying overhead. And it's um, a pretty rad little sound that they got, and it was something that, you know, I think was kind of legendary um, when you hear about that home studio that they ran a microphone out to the to the swimming pool and I think they also ran like a speaker out there so they could have talk back it's it's amazing that yeah I would love to visualize what this was because you know different mics said they were all lying on the backs and stuff and uh, you can hear Dennis come over some sort of little crackly speaker sometimes when they're recording this so was he inside the house listening or what, what did this even look like yeah it must have been right <laughs> yeah the vocals there are uh Everyone but Dennis, Brian, Carl, Mike, and Al. And then Billy Hinchy was there for some early takes. Oh, yeah. But that. Uh, he didn't end up in the final one. Yeah, there's this early, early attempt with this big, big sort of echoey wash that they taped over. When you hear someone's voice saying, I get lost in my notes, and that's totally Billy Hinchy. I asked Billy Hinchy, and he said it wasn't him, but it is. Come on. Um, <laughs> but he wasn't on the final recording. It was just uh, just the four, four Beach Boys. Yeah, and then uh, the lead vocal, once again, these are lyrics that we've talked about before that were written in 1966, but don't show up in any of the recordings before here. Uh, but Brian sings the uh, the lead very slowly and solemnly, and then Mike's got the last line there, the sunny down snuff. And uh, that's it. They didn't have to double track the lead or anything because it's a very natural sounding, honest part of the song. Yeah, and it's... I just wonder what this would have been earlier. I mean, I mean, we think that these lyrics would have gone over prelude to fade at some point, but you just have to wonder how Brian mm-hmm. wrote this because it's it's beautiful. It's like why why did why is it taken like half a year plus to record this thing? Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably one of the last things he had in mind for. Okay, this will be the final thing we do for heroes and villains, and uh, he started over so many times that he never got to the final part of Heroes and Villains until now. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about how Stand of Fall and this, this was probably one of um, part of one verse. We don't need to go over that again, but it means that he's added that um, by the hero's end on the end of it to kind of tie it together. And this is the infamous lyric yeah. that Mike complains about on the uh, the Late in Hawaii kind of uh, diatribe and voiceover thing. But I think this is this is an odd one that I see a lot of people citing as like Van Dyke Park's being really obscure and hard to understand. But it's not really. It's just been unex- underexplained. I think it's one that 
it's hard to get with that context. So Sunny Dance Enough, it's not Sunny as in with a U, it's Sunny with an O, because it's a reference to Sunny Boy Cigars, which are a brand of cigars. So obviously the lyric is about um, snuffing out a Sunny Boy cigar, and it's kind of like, here I am at the end of the day with a cigar, and it's kind of a sunset sort of scene at the same time. That's all it is. It's not, you know, there's not a lot to it. It's uh, just a nice little deal. I can't even remember where I first saw someone point that out about what it what it was and when I heard that I was like oh obviously that makes so, that makes so much sense what else would sunny down snuff be but uh yeah this is something that I know was uh like a sort of over and over the crow cries and cover the cornfield infamous lyric and then um the last section second completely new one recorded in the house was um the new take of children were raised just Brian on an electric harpsichord and then an overdub of of his uh, new organ and then also interesting here is typically like they do on the verse and the chorus they would all sing together and overdub it onto one track but he has everyone sing their part separately on different overdubs yeah a lot of a lot of brian on this but this is this thing is my favorite piece of music from all of smile and smiley smile every single this is my favorite number one thing from all of these sessions it's it's beautiful it's so it's like oh it's magic this thing it's 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 either the second or third attempt at children were raised because you know there's rumors of one from december 66 that we've never heard so this would be like attempt number three and this time he's chorus of the often wise with that strange chord at the end and he repeats it he cycles it around for another sort of round of the progression and it's more kind of solemn and slow at the end and i think this is just yeah, this this thing's just completely like, oh, it's it's magical. <laughs> I want to live in it. <laughs> My children were raised, you know, they suddenly rise. They started slow, long ago, head to toe, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yeah, and the the way that Brian and Carl's voices play off each other on like the boys and girls line is just, it's beautiful. And the mic on the bottom and Brian's doing like da 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 thing. It's, and then there's the, Brian's lead is perfect as well. I've already said that on the verses, but I think all of, all of this June version of Heroes and Villains is some of Brian's best singing that he's ever done, period. It's just so like wholesome and so much feeling in it. And when he sings and wise, and there's like a big reverb wash in his voice, it's just, oh God, <laughs> this is, this it's is, perfect. Yeah. This is, yeah. This is top shelf, 10 out of 10, 15 out of 10. So even after, you know, three months in earlier in the year of just straight heroes and villains sessions, he's now revisited it three months later and finished it in three days that's it three days yeah maybe maybe a, well a fourth day when he mixes it down because we think he didn't mix it at the house but very quick right but uh th this is all the sections he needs to uh complete the edit yeah and that's what he did and why how do you how do you feel about it <laughs> yeah i mean it's cool um <laughs> no i love i love that section i mean you nailed it i mean it's everything about it is is great it's one of the best things that they recorded or smile, if, or non-smile. Yeah. How about? Yeah, um, I, I'd say the same thing about the uh, the barbershop, the acapella part. Oh yeah. Because those 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 chord voicings in the pool, which is a totally new piece of music, he hadn't recorded that progression for heroes before. Yeah, that it's just diminished it's chords. I love them. It's I think that Brian really pulled this thing together in a way that 
I, I wouldn't have envisioned from all these fragments, but it works. You know, yeah, maybe not I've at heard all. it yes. a million times and it works for that reason, but um, I can't imagine hearing this on the radio and being like, oh, this is the new Beach Boys single. Just kind of strange. In a way, it's the best mm-hmm. version yet, but in a way, it's kind of lackluster. I was always pretty underwhelmed with the final single released of Heroes and Villains. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. the sound of it sonically. I mean, like, coming after Good Vibrations and you know, pet sounds. It just doesn't match those tunes. Yeah, Good Vibrations is a weird song pieced together from a million different sessions, but it's got some clean, polished shine to it that makes it kind of, uh, well, it's got the upbeat chorus, and that does a lot for the commercialism of it, but I think it's also just, it sounds great on the radio, on the record player, and this is just like, the way it's mixed and the way it's recorded mm-hmm. is is very muddy in comparison, which works, you know, for a creepy Western song, but it really doesn't work for a a, a single. We think we mixed it at Wally Hyde Studio 3 because there is um, some reverb on it. You know, it's been said, this sort of lo-fi home studio kind of thing, but if you listen to the um, actual mono single mix, I don't think it's been kind of replicated accurately since then. But there's some, a little bit of reverb on the vocals and like the organ in the verse is covered in echo and when he sings and why. So I think he took this over to Wally Hyder Studio 3 to mix this down properly. Um, but yeah, so the finished song, uh, how do we feel? <laughs> if you live through the story that we've told here, um, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting journey that, that results in something that's, you know, maybe not as... Um, not as cool as the as the uh, as all the different individual pieces themselves, but um, it works. They had to do something that was releasable and that they could put themselves back on the charts. I've been in this town so long and back in the city. I've been taken for lost and gone and unknown for a long, long time. Fell in love years ago with an innocent girl from the Spanish and Indian home of the heroes and. Rain of the bullets that eventually brought her down 
Don't you know they suddenly rise? They started so long ago. Head to toe, helping wealthy and I do miss some of the uh, the bigger pieces like Prelude to Fade and the the Fade Out and Cantina and everything, but I think vocally like this is better than anything they've done previously for Heroes and Villains. I think some some sort of magic happened because all these parts come together so well. Yeah, I mean this is the thing that got me into the Beach Boys in the first place. This single, this um this version of Heroes because yeah I think it blew my mind as well to think hang on a second this is going into like another song now um, and then I, I looked it up and realized it was from this project where like he kind of recorded all these unique sort of mini songs and wrapped them together and through all these outtakes of Heroes and Villains and it was like blew my mind at the time but yeah I think this one it's kind of it underwhelms me in three different places one is in just the chorus the fact that he mixed out those extra instruments two in that it's missing the cantina and three in that it kind of just fades out with another chorus and doesn't do anything afterwards because it feels you know it's more cohesive than anything you've done before this point but it also feels kind of like it doesn't go far enough like it's it's there's not enough context for it being this sort of western song i think it does need the cantina bridge but that yeah. transition from that the way the um... yeah the acapella verse into children were raised is perfect you know that that transition but it, i just you know it needs cantina it needs the cantina section in there yeah i'm not a huge fan of the of the mix he did earlier that we talked about no in february um just because vocally it's not really up to par but the way it ends with the fade out is just perfect and the way this version ends with um you know it's you've got the beautiful two bridge sections and then it goes back to the chorus it's almost like the villains win yeah, kind of wish there was some some sort of piece to tie it together. I mean, yeah, this is one of the few times where you hear me say like the Brian Wilson presents Smile one. I think got it right. You know, it's still I would have loved th- three score and five, but and I think you need like that fade section on the end as well. But the way they structured it, basically just with the single, but with Cantina and Prelude to Fade, it is kind of slow. But I think it's the most sort of satisfying whole way to structure the song. And uh, yeah, I should probably talk about like mention at least the edits as well, which is are really creative in this like after the organ and children were raised, the way it just goes dead silent. You know, I don't think I've heard a song do that before where there's no echo hangs over it like the stereo mixes. It just stops for a minute. And when the way Mike sings by the hero's end and it like cuts him off at the end of the chorus is is brilliant. That's such a good, that's a, such a good moment. It's not been recreated since in, in the stereo mixes. Um, some really creative kind of editing as an arrangement tool going on here. 
So with the song completed, the Beach Boys' next step was to get it on the radio. Here's Mike Love. Perhaps nothing illustrated how quickly the tides had turned against us than Brian's effort to release Heroes and Villains. Compared to what we had worked on in the Smile sessions, much of the track had been redone, including new vocals. Brian himself, having become increasingly interested in astrology, decided that the stars were aligned at the end of July. One night after midnight, he called our friend Terry Melcher and a couple of executives at Capitol, and he told them that they had to release Heroes and Villains right now. They arrived at Brian's house by 1.45 a.m. and drove to KHJ, a top 40 station. Whenever Brian finished a song, he felt an urgency to hear it on the radio, which was a sign of validation, but in this case, the gates were locked. Terry got out of the car, found the security guard, and somehow convinced him to let in the group. Once in the studio, Brian approached the DJ with his new song. Here is the follow-up to Good Vibrations, he said. Well, I can't play that. It isn't on the playlist. Terry pulled the DJ into the control room. Look, get the program director on the phone right now. I can't wake him up, the DJ said. You'd better wake his ass up, Terry said, or this is the last minute you're in the record business. The DJ called the program director, Bill Drake, and handed the phone to Terry. Bill, I'm down here with Brian and Capital, Terry said. He wants to give you the exclusive for Heroes and Villains. Tell him to put the f***ing record on right now, please. Thank you very much. The record was played, but from where Brian was just a few months ago, heralded on national television as the Apostle of Pop, to where he was now, literally begging to have his song played in the dead of night, the drop-off was dismaying. Well, this song was released on July 31st, and um, it rose to number 12 on the U.S. charts, which... It's pretty good, but not great. Yeah. And not what they were hoping it was for. one of the it was one of the last songs the Beach Boys ever had in the top twenty, believe it or not. And the the next one they had was rock and roll music in nineteen seventy six. But this was voted uh, song of the year in France. <laughs> wow. And that's yeah. Van Dyke Parks felt that his contributions destroyed the band's commercial momentum. <laughs> mm. And uh Al Jardine said of Van Dyke, you know, he apologized to me for ruining my career. I said, Van Dyke, not only did you not ruin it, but you enhanced it. You enhanced our knowledge just by being there. So, yeah, I mean, we're, this is the end of the uh, Smile era. You know, a lot of things are going to change from here on out. We should mention the B-side here. It's kind of the last, the last piece that, that really ties this whole thing up. This is maybe on December 16th. Could be after. Yeah. In a slightly unorthodox way, the boys recorded vocals independently of any instruments and then overdubbed the track second for this song called You're Welcome. No, well, no, I was just what I did. I just wanted I to I think show we should go like this. Compare the twist trips. it. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, oh, try this. Well, uh, I mean, well, you are you welcome. welcome. Well, you well, you welcome. 
Let's do it like that. You go like this, you go. Not push on your Adam's apple. Okay, here we go. This will be take two off. And then the next one with with the orchestra will be regular. And then it'll go into something like Well, you're welcome. We can do that and everything. Yeah. We can do the whole bit. What? Say it, baby, you welcome. Yeah. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three. Well, you well, you welcome. Well, you well, you welcome. Well, you well, you welcome. Well, you welcome to. All six boys experimenting with different singing styles and pacing and seemingly having a good time doing it. Ultimately, just deciding to sing it straight, starting quiet and slowly crescendoing to a loud chant. So then Dennis overdubs a concert bass drum, and on the second overdub, it's unclear who played what, but there are two people on the glockenspiel. It's probably Brian and maybe Dennis. And a conga drum and a weird metallic percussion sound that could be a tambourine played in a strange way. Steve Bonilla. I hadn't given it much thought before, but it, it was a weird tune and could have been radical in the right place on the album. They're singing over the, the bed of Goodnight Ladies. Now when Dead-Eyed Dick and Mexico Pete go forth in search of fun, it's usually Dick who uses a stick and Mexico And then you think about it's fading in, and is it coming toward you, or you approaching this little group of people singing? Um, and then it's, well, you're welcome. And there's no thank you, but there's a you're welcome. And so it's like, is this the end, the beginning? Is it there? Am I going toward it? And I just, um, it's kind of funny. And then I thought about that fade in, and I was thinking, is there a record that's that fades in like that? And I said, and I thought, yes, there was in 1966, the B side of their coming to take me away, haha. And the other thing that they're coming to take me away, haha, has is the the rise in pitch as the person seems to get more and more crazy, the pitch rises. And I found out that they used a, a variable frequency oscillator, what I used to call a VSO. You know, the Beach Boys did that on a little later on on 
she's going bald. Uh, and then I thought, well, there's also sirens in, in they're coming to take me away. And, and Brian used sirens. And so I thought, you know, maybe there's a, a relationship here with, with that record. And, uh, and, and you're welcome. I mean, the B side is the A side played backwards. So naturally it fades in. Uh, but I, and it's also a pretty funny record. At least I thought so when I was 12. Um, and it was a big record. It was a top three record. It went number one in a lot of places. So uh, certainly Brian was listening to that. In the long view, if you think of pet sounds fading out and dropping you off and you're landing and you're in a totally different place and your welcome fades in and uh, which would, you know, it, it's something to think about. It definitely feels like the final track of the album to me, um, especially, you know, thinking about Our Prayer being an intro track. This feels like a, an outro um, what do you guys think? Well, what's interesting is on that track list that they sent into Capitol, uh, Your Welcome isn't listed anywhere. So right. I'm wondering if maybe he decided later that he wanted to um, make that and put it on the album because they probably hadn't recorded it by the time they sent that in. Um, but also, it, it didn't appear on Smiley Smile, and it was released in 1967 as a B-side. Yeah. So I kind of have a theory that maybe even then he was... Because he had the Heroes and Villains single in mind. Maybe even then he was thinking it would just be a, a non-album B-side to that that track. Mm. But it could have been on the album. Yeah, so yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think the most likely thing, he would have probably been a B-side to Heroes and Villains, which at the time, the single, um, the original version of the single, he was supposed to finish it by Christmas. This is around the same sort of time. And I think it you know, it could have been a B-side to that, just like it ended up being a B-side to the final Heroes and Villains months later. Um, but I see. The way I think I, I definitely agree with the whole thing about it working as a sort of epilogue to the album. That's the way I do it in my own um, fan mix anyway. You know, it just works. I really like it coming after Surf's Up. And that's not based on anything historical. It's just, I like it there. Stay tuned for the Sail on Smile mix, guys. You heard, <laughs> you heard it here first. It's coming. <laughs> the other thing as well with this is it's the only, apart from Good Vibrations, it's the only piece of music recorded in the smile era that was released like sort of contemporously without any modifications you know it's yeah, the only thing other yeah. than good vibrations that came out without any other modifications later and it kind of just flew under the radar as a b-side it's um, pure it's pure smile um, yeah i actually think it kind of would have been nice on the smiley smile album kind of yeah, fits, fits in with vibe. the with like the amateurish you know weird group playing and the quiet vocals yeah, it definitely sounds like a smiley smile vibe to me, um, and I'm a big fan of this track. The harmonies, yeah, are, yeah, the harmonies are really great. They didn't even double track it; it's just them singing live, which is yeah. even more impressive. All six of them. I think it's it's Bruce on the very top part, and then Brian and Al sort of doing the lead melody, then Carl and Dennis below them, and then Mike on the bottom. It's one of those moments on the sessions where you can tell that they were all kind of having a good time with this stuff. And it wasn't this tumultuous thing that a lot of people made it out to be. I was lucky enough to work with someone as brilliant as Tchaikovsky or Debussy. And this Brian, you have to look at it as a master class in music. You got to take a deeper breath. 
So you have fond memories of being in that studio recording those background vocals then. You don't think of it as a time of fighting, of animosity, of, of a Beach sour Boys, relationship. The Beach Boys weren't fighting. If the Beach Boys were fighting against Brian, you wouldn't hear those harmonies. You don't sing that beautifully when you're mad. A week before Heroes and Villains came out, Capitol released Best of the Beach Boys Volume 2. Again. So no. <laughs> now at this point, their last two albums in a row are Best of Compilations. Wow. Yeah, um, they're on their way to being a, a legacy act already. Yeah, and that I mean, I guess that's what you get. In the 60s, you really had to put out material a lot in order to stay relevant. And um, this was the only way that, that they could do it since they weren't offering anything to the to the label. That's the thing with Heroes. I mean, I don't think it, it would never have been number one. Like, I don't think any version would have got to number one. I think it would have done as well as Sloop John B, maybe. Like, number three. If that was released, like, close after Good Vibrations. But I think the thing that killed this, and it still did reasonably well, is it just they left it too long. Like, they lost all momentum and goodwill that they had by having such a big gap. Yeah, it had been, like, nine months at this point since they had a single. Yeah, yep. in that time, specifically... The music was changing so yeah, much at the time. music changed so yeah. much, and... It was a different world when they put out just one more song. Post Monterey, yeah, they finished recording Heroes like just the, like a day before the Monterey Pop Festival, which is fun to think about. No, like a couple of mm. days before, but and then yeah, that's another big turning point. You know that they missed out on that opportunity to kind of you know stay relevant and perform for a new audience. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean a lot of a lot of things that that weren't going right here, but. I think creatively, um, they were, you know, they were on a on a good path, like exploring some new ideas and moving back to Brian's house was really big for them, and um, it gave them a lot of a lot of leeway creatively to do some yeah. new things, and and also to uh, they weren't having to spend a ton of money to <laughs> to make music anymore and waste you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, making music that no one would hear exactly yeah the acceptance on the album was so late in coming that he, by that time he just decided the game was over just decided what's the point you know you putting anything into it and he never really did I don't think recovered from that you know he just decided that uh, Maybe uh, he'd wait for a while until the industry caught up or something. I don't know. We spent as much time on that album as we did on Pet Sounds. It's not far from completion. That could be completed if he wanted to put the energy into it. I don't think I'd attempt to do it <clears throat> because it's not my work, you know. I, mean, I could finish it. I think Carl and I and Dennis could probably, Mike, could probably put, put it together, but I, I'd rather he did it, you know, you know. Uh, it's in fragments. It's just a bunch of fragments. And they're really good. They're really superb fragments. I'm excited for the next... Um, little era here that we're getting into it's fun yeah, me the, too the stuff we've been looking forward to since we started this <laughs> yeah it smells good but it's, it's intense <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, and I'd say Smiley Smile is my second favorite Beach Boys album, just behind yeah. Pet Sounds. Yeah, some some great stuff and um, some things that I feel like we can talk about that no one else has really spent a lot of time on. And I feel like no, yeah, no one has really um, looked at the sessions and tried to figure out what instruments and who plays what, like uh, like Will and I have. Yeah, I mean that's part of what makes me excited because I, as much as I, as much as I'm a, I'm a nerd for this era, um, it's going to be nice to kind of get a new perspective on it and hear some, hear some new yeah. things. So nobody other than us specifically have figured out that Bruce sings on "She's Going Bold," for example. <laughs> yeah, and even when people do look at that era, I feel like "Smiley Smile" is kind of unjustly ignored. Mm-hmm. Because it's so weird, and because how do you even talk about this stuff? Yeah, it's but, just as just as worthy of attention and analysis, like on the same level of depth of smile and pet sounds. Everything afterwards, I think. I completely agree. All right, thank you guys for navigating these treacherous waters with me. I really appreciate it. And uh, well, you're welcome. Hey. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I appreciate it. And we will speak to you soon about smiley smile. Can't All believe right. I'm saying that, but here we are. See you, Wyatt. We're free. <laughs> Okay, we are on to the next one. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Steve Bonilla. Thanks to Will C, who does our music. Thanks to all of you for your time and your support. And thank you to the Beach Boys for the amazing music. Please shoot me an email at sailonpodcast at gmail.com. Leave me a voicemail at 615-606-3887. All the other links are in the show notes. Please be kind to each other. Hang on to your ego. I love you guys. Sail on, sailors. Beach Boys ASMR. <laughs> this, this is the closest, really doing closest it. they've ever got to that. <laughs> it sounds that better now? Sound like the Leaning Tower. Piece of two, three, four. Mm. That was constructive, Al. Leaning Tower <laughs> pizza. Well, a little tumbling. Yeah. One, <clears throat> two, cool. three, four.